This is the podcast for RUF at the University of Texas. A community for students to experience God's grace and express God's grace to others. For more information, visit www.ruf.org slash UT. Or find us on Instagram at TexasRUF. Hey everyone, I'm Nicholas Manley. I'm one of the RUF interns. Tonight's reading is from John chapter 4, starting at verse 5. So Jesus came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek? Or, Why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, See a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The word of the Lord. Well, hey, y'all. Thanks for being here. My name is John Trapp. I'm the campus minister here for RUF at Texas, and we're really glad that you're tuning in. Now, I want you to know about RUF, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, maybe you're not sure you're a Christian, maybe you're not sure you want to even be a Christian. Wherever you are right now in that process, we want RUF to be a judgment-free space where you can come to the Bible with honest questions and process what you believe about the Bible and about who the Bible says God is. And one of the ways that we can know what God is like, one of the things that the Bible has given us actually is to look at Jesus so in John 14, 8 through 9, Philip says this, one of his disciples to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father and it's enough for us. And then Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. 
it can be really easy to, to divide in your mind the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament and to think that like God the Father is like so different from God the Son. But that's not what the Bible presents to be true. And in fact, later in the book of Hebrews, it says this, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. In other words, do you want to know what God is like? Look at Jesus. Jesus is exactly what God is like. And so as we consider this passage that Nicholas read for us, I want you to think about that. That the Jesus in this story is who the Bible claims this is who God is like. Before we do that, let's pray. Dear Father, we want to know what you claim to be like. We're quick to doubt that you're good or gracious, but in your kindness, you've given us Jesus so that we might know more of what you're like. So we pray now that by the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would help us to see Jesus clearly. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So some of y'all know I'm from a small town called Tuscumbia, Alabama. So small, in fact, that my graduating class had nine people. That's true. So that means like whenever our school did something, like everyone had to be in it and involved in it. And we, my senior year, put on a play of Cinderella, most basic kind of play you could put on right in high school. And everyone in the community came out to watch, I think partially because things in our plays usually went wrong because we weren't actually like the best thespians in the world. And so the play is happening. It's actually like a decent amount of people from the community, probably 200, 300 people. It's, it's a full room. And the play is going shockingly well. In fact, it's going so well, there's been no hiccups. And we get to the last scene. It's when Cinderella is out on the stage her stepmother and stepsisters are there and they're waiting for Prince Charming to show up and try on the glass slipper. But there was just one problem. Prince Charming never showed up. Like for two or three minutes, I'm not kidding, Cinderella is on stage alone with her stepsister and stepmother and there's nobody showing up. And so they're just ad-libbing, and the more that they ad-lib, the more the crowd begins to catch on, like, what's going on, because Cinderella's looking out the window, and she's like, oh, I think, like, he's down the street. Oh, I just saw the squire go next door to announce the prince. I don't know when he's going to be here. And finally, to the laughter and delight of all of the people in the crowd, Prince Charming finally showed up, but it was much too late, and the play was totally ruined. And I know that the play was totally ruined because people kept telling me that the play was totally ruined because I was Prince Charming and I didn't show up. It was all my fault. <laughs> See, I'd just been sitting in the back with my friend. We totally forgot our cue. Um, our teacher was running the spotlight, so they weren't there to kick me out on the stage. And we completely messed up the play. And the play was ruined because there was a bad Prince Charming. And I think that the woman in this story could relate to the Cinderella on the stage back at my school. Because just like the Cinderella on stage who was alone and ashamed and afraid, that's where we find this woman from Samaria today. She's at a well, and it's a place where she is all alone. It's a place where she is reminded daily of her shame. And I want you to see what happens. So three things tonight. Who is this woman? How does Jesus respond to her? And so what? 
All right, let's go. Who is this woman? First off, you need to know she's the last person in the world that you would expect for Jesus to approach for a number of reasons, for racial reasons, for cultural reasons, for moral reasons. First off, I want to talk about just briefly, there are serious racial tensions between the Jews and Samaritans. You may know this, but this dates all the way back to 721 BC in the book of 2 Kings chapter 17. What we see is that this segment of Israel, of God's people, intermarried with five invading nations, and they began to worship those invading nations' gods, and these were the Samaritans who did this. And so the Jews looked at the Samaritans as kind of half-breeds. They looked at them as those people, the people that we're not supposed to associate with, the people who've got jacked-up theology, who don't know who the true God of Israel is, and there were, so there's like centuries of racial tension between these two groups. So much so that if you look at verse 9, the woman is shocked that Jesus is talking to her. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? She's like, what are you doing? You know who we are. You know who I am. But not only is she an outcast because of who she is, she's also an outcast because of what she's done. So there's all kinds of interesting little details that the author of John gives us here. But one is in verse 6 you'll see that this woman has gone to get water at the sixth hour of the day. Now, the way that they um, measured time back then is the first hour would start when the sun would rise. So the sixth hour of the day would be about high noon. And this is the last time, if you're living in the ancient Near East with no air conditioning, with no car, and with in, in like the Middle East, that's the last time you'd want to go and get water. Most people, and most commentators would agree that most people would go and get water from the well in the morning. And it was, it would be a village activity. It would be a time when you would socialize, catch up on what happened the day before, and you would be with your friends and you would go in the morning. But this woman isn't with that group of friends. She's there at noon because she is a social outcast. And as we read the story, we find out why. It's because she's had five husbands. Now, it's easy to kind of read something in the Bible and just sterilize it because maybe it's familiar or we just don't imagine it. But I want you to really imagine what it would be like to be somebody living in a small, small town where everybody knows your history and they know that you've had five failed marriages. Imagine what this would be like for this woman walking through the village. Imagine how many times people whispered under their breath while she walked past. Imagine how many times they whispered loud enough for her to hear them as she passed. Imagine how many times she was the brunt of a joke. Oh, you hear about her? The woman who had five failed marriages? Have you heard she's with a sixth and she's not even married to the guy? That's her experience. That's who she is. She's an outcast. If she was here around campus, you'd be tempted to avoid her your sorority probably would not have her in. That's who she is. She's alone at the well, and she's alone in her life. But here's the deal. She is a picture of who we are, of who I am. Because what the Bible says is that we're outcasts. We're outcasts. In Romans 3, Paul says it this way, as it is written, none is righteous. No, 
Not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Did you hear what Paul says there? He says, we are worthless. That's outcast language. He says, no one seeks for God. But the truth about us and the truth about this woman is that we do seek after something, even if it's not God. We're all seeking after something. Because we're all thirsty, just like this woman. We're desperate for something to satisfy us. And whatever it is that you look to to satisfy you, that's what you worship. Whatever it is. But the problem with worshiping things is that these things will leave you empty and still thirsty. Just like this woman who is now going back to the well, who's gone back to the well of marriages, one after another, after another, after another, we find ourselves going back to whatever thing that we may think will satisfy us. But here's the problem. The things that you worship, these lowercase gods that we worship, they'll punish you. David Foster Wallace gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College, uh, which has gained a lot of notoriety. Um, This speech is uh, over a decade old now, I believe. It's called, uh, interestingly enough, This is Water. And if you don't know who David Foster Wallace is, he's an atheist, which is important to remember as I read this. This man's an atheist. He's a Pulitzer-nominated author. Listen to what he says to the college graduates of Kenyon College. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get to have is what we worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you find real meaning in life, then you will never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million small deaths before your life's end. Worship power, and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, you will end up feeling like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. See, this is what our gods, our lowercase gods do. They promise satisfaction, they promise safety, but they deliver emptiness and insecurity. And these empty and insecure things, when you fail them, when you fail these gods, they will punish you. Think about it for a second. How do you feel when you fail that test? If your God is your academic progress, it will punish you and tell you that you're a fraud. The God, of, um, the God of social status will punish you when you get ignored for the invitation to the party or when you tell a joke at the party that no one thinks is funny. That God will punish you and make you feel like a reject. If your God is beauty and the way that your body looks, and you wake up with acne, a massive breakout, your God will punish you. And it will make you feel like an undesirable wreck. The things that we worship are ruthless gods. Only one God, there is only one God, 
who doesn't punish you and shame you when you fail him. And I would suggest to you, it's the God of the Bible. Listen, remember, Jesus shows us what God is like. He shows us what he's like. So look how he responds to this woman. He meets her where she feels the most shame, where she most feels like a failure. And it's right there that he pursues her. It's right there that he crosses racial boundaries. He crosses cultural barriers. He crosses moral barriers. And he goes to her. And it's completely unexpected. Did you see in verse 27 when the disciples get back? They see what he's doing. And it says they marveled he was talking with a woman. What are you doing, Jesus, talking to her? But here's here's the good news of the gospel. Like Romans 3.10, which I read to you earlier, it says no one seeks after God. The good news of the gospel is God doesn't care. He seeks after us. The good news of the gospel is that God seeks after us, after sinners. Now listen, last week we talked about Nicodemus from John chapter 3. And if you didn't listen to that sermon, that's okay. I, I want to give you a brief synopsis because I, I think that the author of John is doing something really important here. He's comparing and contrasting Nicodemus's resume over here, John 3, with the Samaritan woman from John 4. And, and it, I, I think it's very intentional and stark what he's doing. Think about all the ways that they are different from each other. Nicodemus is a man. She's a woman. Nicodemus has a name in the story. She doesn't have a name, which means she doesn't have much status. He's a Pharisee, which means he's a religious expert. She is a Samaritan, which means she has jacked up theology, according to the Jews. He's a Jew. She's a Samaritan. He is high class. She is not. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the darkness at night. She meets with Jesus in the middle of the day. But here are two things that I want you to see that I think are very, it's very intentional what's happening here. Nicodemus walks up to Jesus, but Jesus walks up to her. And here's the other thing. He walks up to her, he has this interaction with her, and he tells her, I am the Messiah. And she's the first person he tells that to in the book of John. Nicodemus isn't told that. See, we think that that's who Jesus is going to tell it to, but he doesn't tell Nicodemus. Nicodemus is going to figure it out later, we see in John 19. But Jesus goes up to this person that nobody would go up to. And he tells her, I'm the Christ. That's what God's like. That's him. And what this means is you don't have to be a certain kind of person or a certain race or a certain social status for Jesus to pursue you. You don't have to be moral enough. You don't have to be religious enough for Jesus to pursue you. This woman is the messiest of the messy. And her story gives us the example and the truth that you don't have to clean up yourself before God will deem you worthy of his pursuit. In fact, He approaches her at the well, the place where every single day she is reminded that no one wants her. Where every day she's reminded that she's an outcast. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to think of what that place is for you. Where's the place where you feel most shame? 
where you feel most like a failure, the place that nobody else knows about, that's actually the place where Jesus wants to meet you. In his book, Hide or Seek, John Freeman tells a story of a little boy named Sam who's 10 years old, and Sam's dad, John, had their family over for a Super Bowl party. They're all hanging out, watching, having fun. John's brother, Sam's uncle, goes upstairs to use the restroom. And as he's coming back downstairs, um, he pokes his head down the stairs. He's like, hey, John, can I use your computer? I need to check my email. This is like pre-iPhone days. You didn't have your phone on your, or your email on your phone. So he's like, yeah, just hop on the computer in the playroom. So uncle gets up there, hops on the computer, types in www, all the browser history pops down. And it's just column after column of horrendous pornography, of embarrassing, shameful porn. And the uncle calls up John, the dad, and says, hey, you need to come up here and see something. Dad sees it. Dad sees it. He mourns over it because the dad hasn't looked at it. He knows it's somebody else. Gets everyone, keeps it together for the rest of the party. Gets everyone out of the house, cleans up the house, and then he go get and gets his ten year old son Sam. He sits him on the couch, and it's just the two of them. And he says, "Sam, have you been looking at things on our computer?" And Sam denies it. No, Dad, I don't even know what you're talking about. And he asks him again. And he asks him a third time, and his son just breaks. And here's what John did. He didn't shout at his son. He didn't shame his son. He didn't get angry at his son. He picked up his son and he held him close. And he just wept with his boy. And in the story, John said, I, I actually held him. I held him like I've held him time after time again when he was a little infant, just cradling him in my arms. And they just began to talk. And Sam began to tell his dad everything. In in a letter describing this moment, listen to how his father describes it. The hour was now 2 a.m. We were both beat and we were still embracing. Instead of disappointment and anger, I felt relief and a deeper love for my son. He was almost asleep now in my arms. Once I placed him in his bed, he fell asleep, and subsequently, he woke up several times during the next hour, calling out my name to discuss and confess some more. Eventually, he got everything off his chest, and he finally fell asleep. This is a picture of who Jesus is. He is the one who will meet you in the place of your shame, of your fear, where you don't think anyone else would. And listen, Jesus is not, he's not grossed out or repulsed by your sin. It doesn't make him want to get away from you. It actually makes him want to draw near to you. He'll meet you in your pornography addiction. Jesus will meet you in your eating disorder. Jesus will meet you in the ways that you abuse alcohol or pills. He'll meet you in your cheating. Whatever Whatever well that you have been going to that keeps leaving you thirsty and alone and ashamed, that's where he wants to meet you. And he's going to give you something that will finally satisfy you, himself. So what? 
I want you to imagine how that little boy must have felt to be in his dad's arms and to remember that he was loved. Think of the relief. Think of the joy the next day to have given everything off of his chest to his dad and to experience love. Oh my, I want that for y'all. Look, I know that this is a season where many of us have likely been going to wells that are leaving us thirsty. I want you to know the joy of true and deep satisfaction. Look, in verse 15, when this woman asks for the water, Jesus responds and says, go call your husbands. And he's not, he's not being mean there. He's not like, oh, I'm going to spend this on her. Go call your husband. Oh, wait, you don't have any husbands, but you've had five and the one you're with now, he's not even your husband. Like Jesus is not doing that. Here's what he's doing. He's asking her to be honest with him because you can't, you can't experience this kind of grace from Jesus until you're honest with yourself about who you are to him. And then you get to experience his love that he receives you and accepts you. You can be honest with Jesus about yourself. Why? Because listen, on the cross, Jesus took all the honest things about us onto his very body. He paid for our sin. He took the things that are honest about me and about you. He took them to the grave and he, the way he killed them is he died with them. He killed it. And he rose to new life so that anyone who's in him may have new life, friends. And so because of that, that belief, God being this kind of God, it's a pathway to true friendship and vulnerability. Do you see what she, this woman does in verse 29? She goes back to the village, the place where she's an outcast, where everyone knows what she did. And she says, y'all, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Everything she ever did is what she's been like ashamed and sad about and hiding from. And now she's saying, come see it. Why could she be that vulnerable? Why could she say, come see it? No more hiding. Because she has met Jesus and let him see and and encountered the authentic truth about herself with God and she has met with, been met with grace. And that kind of grace breeds authenticity with one another because he loves you in spite of your mess and he goes to work in your life. See, Jesus begins to reshape us into the kind of person who can leave behind our sin and our shame and our idols. Did you see what she does with her water jar? She's not thirsty anymore. She leaves the water jar when she goes back to the village. We can become that kind of person who leaves the water jars that keep leaving us empty. We don't have to go back to those other wells because now we have Jesus. I want that for you. Perhaps that could allow you to be real with yourself and with each other. Do you know the love of Jesus? Do you believe that he will meet you in the place of your shame? This is who God is. He's really like this. Let's pray. Father, Thank you that we can call you Father. Thank you that you know us. And that you're so committed to saving us that you sent your precious son who willingly purchased us with his life, who rose victorious from the grave so that in him, in Jesus, our Savior, Lord, and King, we might find the water that will never leave us thirsty again. I pray we would drink deeply from you, King Jesus, by the power of your spirit. Amen.